I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined, the intersection of religion and politics in our public discourse. Dartmouth University professor Randall Balmer reflects on this unique aspect of American history. Beginning with the 1980 election, is that you begin to see a kind of interlacing of the religious right with the Republican parties. And then, as we get closer to the election, what role will religion play in influencing the candidates and getting out the vote? Reverend Stephanie Rose Spalding says she cannot stay silent on issues of race and gender. I am not just a faith leader. I am a Black woman in a predominantly white um, denomination. For me to be asked to, to separate out, to parse out all of who I am is actually to deny me my fullness of humanity. Preaching politics from the pulpit. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. I want to start today's program with a thank you to you, our listeners. You make KCRW what it is, this beautiful experiment in public radio, where ideas and music blend into this one-of-a-kind institution. In the last four months, we've been trying something new, which is bringing conversations about science, philosophy, and faith to the airwaves. Life Examined is about asking the bigger questions in life— Questions that are not always easy to sit with, but hopefully bring us a little closer to who we really are. So for those of you who've been on this journey with me every week, I want to say thank you. And also ask that you help keep programs like this on the air. KCRW has not been immune to the financial downturn of the pandemic. And donating to the station is a way of securing our independent future in these turbulent times. KCRW.com slash give or 1-800-600-KCRW are easy ways to support our KCRW's power in numbers drive. And we hope that you'll count yourself in. Now to the show. Religion and politics. Together, they're such an integral part of America's political culture. But that wasn't always the case. Until relatively recently, leaders of faith chose to champion causes rather than guide or influence a candidate or political party. That all changed in the mid-1970s when a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, began to attract evangelicals into the political arena. Fast forward to 2016, when 81% of all white evangelicals cast their vote for a Republican agenda and Donald Trump. Today, weeks away from a historic election and facing a multitude of crises, should religious leaders enter the political fray or should they stay quiet? Religion professor and historian Randall Balmer has been tracking the history of evangelical political activism and explains why it's been impossible in recent decades to keep religion out of politics. Well, Professor Balmer, uh, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Happy to be here, Jonathan. You know, we're just weeks out from this historic election right now, and um, you're someone who thinks a lot about the intersection of religion and politics. And if there were ever a moment that was present, it seems to be right now. And indeed, uh, the Trump presidency perhaps had been unique in this conversation as well. Uh, just to start with, what what's going through your mind right now when you look at American politics, you think about this election, and you put it within this context of religion in America? Well, we've certainly got a couple things going on right now. One, we've got the uh, confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court justice who is uh, a, a Catholic and a charismatic Catholic. So that's raising all sorts of interesting questions yeah. from people who don't know that there are, first of all, that there are charismatic or Pentecostal Catholics, but also uh, people who are concerned about how her uh, her faith might inflect the way she rules on various matters before the Supreme Court. And I guess the, the, the larger issue for me is the, the long shadow of the 2016 presidential election when, of course, uh, the, the number that everybody's been repeating for four years, 81% of white evangelicals, and I think the modifier white is important there, supported Donald Trump, a man not uh, not typically associated with family values, which claims to be the uh, cornerstone of uh, the religious right. So uh, as I'm looking to Election Day, uh, one of the things I'm interested in, of course, is uh, how those uh, white evangelicals will come to the polls and uh, make their voices heard on, on Election Day. Right. And, and it's also my understanding that these are, um, these, are, these are prominent voters, folks that really do show up and cast a vote. Is that right? 
that, that is the case now, but it was not that case for a, a long time in the 20th century. And uh, here's, if you don't mind, I'll put my historian's hat on and, uh, and say that uh, really in the middle decades of the 20th century, uh, roughly from 1925 to 1975, those are somewhat uh, arbitrary dates, but kind of gets at the, at the point of the question. Uh, during those middle decades of the 20th century, evangelicals were not involved in politics, certainly not in any organized way. You had a few fringe figures who would uh, you know, spout anti-communist beliefs and so forth. And, you know, they had certain followers, but by and large, evangelicals were not engaged in politics. And many, in fact, were not even registered to vote. And uh, the 1970s changed that. And a whole lot of things uh, happened in the 1970s. Uh, central to that uh, narrative is uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, campaign for the presidency in 1975, 1976. And he began to lure evangelical voters into the political arena. Of course, um, one of the great uh, paradoxes of American politics uh, throughout the centuries, I think, is that many of those same voters who supported Jimmy Carter in 1976 turned dramatically against him in 1980 when he was running for re-election against Ronald Reagan. And that, of course, uh, marks the uh, formation of the religious right. Yeah, and I really want to jump into that, but I think it's worth noting that a lot of your research um, brings up the fact that evangelicals were uh, part of very important social movements and social reforms in the U.S. that we might not consider to be, you know, a fringe right movement or an extreme right movement, but were more mainstream and uh, very vital to American culture. I think it's fair to say that evangelicals uh, really uh, shaped the social and political agenda for much of the nation in the 19th century coming out of uh, a series of revivals that historians call the Second Great Awakening that uh, straddled the decades uh, 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 at the turn of the 19th century. You had evangelicals who were really expressing themselves in terms of uh, remaking society, social reform, almost invariably directed toward those on the margins of society, those Jesus called the least of these. And what I find so striking is juxtaposing that agenda, which I'll go to uh, go into in a minute, with the agenda of the religious right at the end of the 20th century. In the 19th century, evangelicals were very involved in peace crusades. They were very involved in, uh, in prison reform. The whole notion of a penitentiary begins to emerge at this time. Uh, the idea that uh, you send somebody um, or you segregate somebody from the rest of society, not merely to isolate that person, but to make that person penitent so that he or she at some point can rejoin society in a constructive way. Uh, the, uh, uh, the notion of public education, what were known in the, in the 19th century as common schools, began to emerge during the early decades of the 19th century. And evangelicals played prominent roles in shaping the whole movement for public education. And they understood public education as being directed toward the children of those who are less fortunate, those who could not afford uh, schooling on their own. And uh, education would pr provide a way for those children to become upwardly mobile. Uh, evangelicals, uh, obviously uh, in the North in particular, were interested in the issue of slavery and, and uh, equality, uh, looking for the abolition of slavery. Now, I want to point out, and I don't want to deny the fact that there were Southern evangelicals who were pushing or, or, or um uh, defending slavery. But uh, in the North on this issue, evangelicals were, were abolitionists. Uh, and finally, and the issue of women's rights. Uh, evangelicals uh, defended the notion of women's equality and even were uh, campaigning in what was it considered at that time a, a radical issue of voting rights for women in the 19th century. So as I juxtapose that social agenda which was directed toward those on the margins of society with the agenda of the religious right in the waning decades of the 20th century and now in the 21st century, I find a jarring uh, disconnect between the two. 
It also, though, makes me wonder if along the way, if these different churches, these evangelical churches also were becoming more what we would think of now as socially conservative along the way, because that's how we think about it now. I mean, you talked about this earlier movement in the 19th century of, of one that almost sounds like a liberal agenda. But what I hear now and see more now is one that's of a conservative agenda, I guess. Yeah, the, and the, the transition is is really fascinating. And and again, I wish we had more time to to get into it. But what happened? Here's here's a, again a kind of schematic uh, description of what happened. Uh, you had, as I said, in the early part of the 19th century, especially evangelicals who were quite engaged in in a way, as you correctly characterized, uh, that would be considered uh, you know the left wing of politics in in today's sort of uh, understanding of uh, right and left. Uh, evangelicals were very much socially engaged and very much uh, toward the left of the political spectrum. What happens is uh, all sorts of things in American society, including industrialization, uh, urbanization, the in, uh, influx of non-Protestant immigrants who didn't share evangelical scruples about temperance. And so what happens toward the ne- end of the 19th century is that they begin to withdraw s- from society. They adopt uh, a mode of biblical interpretation called dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. I don't want to get lost in terminology here, but essentially what that said was that Jesus is coming back to earth at any moment. And that effectively absolved evangelicals from the task of social engagement and social reform. Hmm. Into the 20th century, uh, that uh, that premillennialism, the notion that Jesus would come back at any time, really prevailed for much of the of the 20th century. Uh, things begin to change a little bit after World War II. There's uh, anti-communist sentiment in American society. Billy Graham emerges during these decades as a very important uh, symbolic figure, as well as a more substantive leader among evangelicals. And his very public friendship with a series of Republican presidents in particular uh, kind of begin to push evangelicals a little bit more toward the right of the political spectrum. And then, as I say, picking up the narrative as I've described it, uh, earlier, by the uh, late 1970s, certainly into the 1980s, evangelicals are uh, have really abandoned their earlier concerns and interest in those on the margins of society, and they begin to uh, gravitate toward uh, really the far right precincts of the Republican Party. Right. So, what happens really? beginning with the 1980 election, is that you begin to see uh, a kind of uh, uh, interlacing of the religious right with the Republican Party, especially the more extreme conservatism of the Republican Party. And that uh, intermingling has uh, really become a kind of fusion that uh, helps to explain, for example, why 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Well, I mean, you know, you get to something really interesting here, which is that, you know, America's political leaders have developed a closer and closer relationship with religious leaders. At least there's some good examples of that in the last 30, 40 years. How did that influence evolve? And I mean, is it possible to run for public office without a faith affiliation these days? Uh, well, I mean, I, I would argue that Donald Trump uh, is, is proof of that huh? in, in some ways, uh, but without getting into that and becoming too partisan. Uh, I, yeah, I, that's, that's another, another question that's, that's really interested me is, is the relationship between religion and the presidency or, or even campaigns for the presidency. And there I think the, the narrative uh, beginnings, begins to emerge in 1960 when, of course, you had uh, John Kennedy, the, only the second Roman Catholic to be a major party nominee for president. And uh, he had to address that issue in the course of that campaign uh, in Houston, Texas, at the Rice Hotel on September 12th, 1960, where he famously said that he was not the Catholic candidate for president. He was the Democratic nominee for president who happened to be Catholic. Right. And what he argued in that speech was that uh, voters essentially should uh, set aside a candidate's faith, a candidate's religion, when they entered the voting booth. And I argue in, an, in another book, uh, God in the White House, 
that uh, Kennedy was so persuasive in that. Not only he, did he win election to the presidency in 1960, of course, but that what I call the Kennedy paradigm of voter indifference to a candidate's faith really prevailed in American politics for uh, about a decade and a half. And one of the ways I like to, text, uh, to test this when I do uh, lectures is to, uh, to ask the audience, what was Lyndon Johnson's religious affiliation? And, uh, and unless there's the ringer in the audience, mm. um, the, the, the typical response is, gee, I don't know. Or I, he was probably a Baptist. Well, uh, happened to be, be di disciples of Christ, which is a story in itself. But my point in, in asking that question is to say nobody cared uh, after Kennedy. Uh, we, we didn't really ask those questions until Watergate. And there you had a president who was uh, certainly morally compromised. And uh, all of a sudden, after Watergate, the American pu public, American voters, wanted to know that their president had a moral compass. Well, who emerges in 1976? A Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, a progressive evangelical, who promised never knowingly to lie to the American people. I try to get my students these days to understand how extraordinary that was mm. in 1976, that a presidential candidate promised not to lie to the American people. Uh, the Americans have, become, uh, Americans have become so accustomed to the prevarications coming out of the Nixon administration that uh, Carter's, uh, Carter's pledge was really quite, quite remarkable. Uh, so all of a sudden, again, voters began to care about a president's faith. And then things kind of faded back again. And then in 2000, again, you had an evangelical Christian who uh, is elected to the presidency, George W. Bush. And I think, uh, once again, Americans were looking for what I call a redeemer president, just as Jimmy Carter had been a redeemer president in 1976 after Watergate. So, too, George W. Bush became president in part because of uh, Bill Clinton and the uh, tawdriness of the Monica Lewinsky right. scandal. Uh, so uh, these things tend to be cyclical. Uh, where we are now going into 2020, I think, is a fascinating question. I think um, it, it would be logical for uh, American voters to be looking for another Redeemer president. Uh, but... Uh, um, maybe I'm wrong about that. We'll see on, on election day. Well, what's so interesting is I think a lot of people perhaps think of President Trump as some kind of a redeemer president, depending on your exact denomination or how you fall within the religious spectrum, um, which, yeah. which, which brings us to this question of the attraction of these evangelical voters that we've been talking about. Yeah, I have to say that I, I find this somewhat confounding, or, well, more than somewhat <laughs> confounding. And and I, I and I try to look at this in a dispassionate way, although I won't pretend that I'm unbiased about it. But I, as a historian, I try to assess this. And actually, I think in 2016, there were three reasons, three principal reasons why Donald Trump won such overwhelming allegiance from white evangelical voters. I think one had to do with the religious rights persistent and um, oft reinforced denigration of Hillary Clinton. And I think many evangelicals, uh, after all those decades of, of um, character assassination, and I'm not saying that all of it was unjustified, but uh, such uh, vehement uh, denunciations directed toward Hillary Clinton, I think many evangelicals simply couldn't couldn't um, bring themselves to, to cast their ballot for Hillary Clinton for president. I think the second factor is uh, what I call the rhetoric of victimization. Uh, one of the keys to this, to both the rise and the success of the religious right has been this rhetoric that insists that we are, we meaning evangelicals are somehow are persecuted uh, we are marginalized in this society, and uh, we're, we're always under attack. Our ideas, our values are under attack. And I think that one of the reasons that 
Donald Trump emerged as their preferred candidate was that he's very, very good at the rhetoric of victimization. Now, mostly it's about himself. He's the victim. But evangelicals uh, recognize that that language, that rhetoric. And uh, Donald Trump speaks it fluently. And I think many evangelicals responded. I want to ask you about um, how you think religion and religious leaders are playing out right now, the, the role they play in America. I mean, there, there's this nice idea that we keep religion and politics separate, you know, the separation of church and state. But we know that, for example, institutions, whether they could be evangelical or not, are, are not supposed to direct congregants how to vote. But I wonder the extent to which that is happening now and and how we're seeing this this enmeshment of the two. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you raise a very good point. And I want to be clear uh, at the outset, uh, as a person of faith myself, I do not believe that people of faith should be silent in the arena of public discourse. I think the arena of public discourse would be impoverished without voices of faith. And I, I, I want to be very, very clear about that. At the same time, I think it's also important that any voices in the arena of public discourse observe the etiquette of democracy. That is to say, uh, speaking in such a way that, yes, they are, are expressing their views, but they are not only expressing their views, they're listening to other views as well. This is part of the, uh, the, the discourse of democracy that has really been a hallmark uh, in our nation uh, since the, the earliest years. Uh, in terms of various groups and uh, uh, individuals using their uh, platform as religious leaders, to make political endorsements, uh, that really was covered by the Johnson Amendment, uh, which was uh, legislation in, introduced by Lyndon Johnson in 1954 that forbids tax-exempt organizations from making political endorsements. Now, this is one of the things that the religious, re religious right wants to undo, and I think it's a terrible, terrible mistake for, the, for them to, to do that. First of all, because... Should they do that, then churches essentially become conduits for political money coming into churches for mm -hmm. tax-exempt reasons and then mm -hmm. uh, being uh, discharged into the political arena in terms of uh, political campaigns or political endorsements. But the other reason I think is even more important, Roger Williams, uh, to whom we owe the whole notion of the separation of church and state, wanted to separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world by means of a wall of separation. This is where the metaphor comes from. And I think to understand that, we need to understand that in the 17th century, when Williams was uh, living in New England, he, did, he was not a member of the Sierra Club. <laughs> that is to say, he was not someone who had these romantic ideas about wilderness that we have really since Henry David Thoreau in the 19th century. For Roger Williams, Wilderness was a place of darkness where evil lurked. And so when Roger Williams talks about protecting the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world by means of a wall of separation, what he's talking about is protecting the integrity of the faith from too close an association with politics, from too close an association with the state. And I think he's absolutely right about that. And I say that as a person of faith. Uh, we need to be vigilant in guarding this wall of separation between church and state. So when people uh, begin to use their churches, their congregations, or their other uh, tax-exempt religious movements to, uh, to engage in, in raw partisan politics, not only does that violate the Johnson Amendment, it also, I think, undermines the integrity of the faith. Now, if they want to do that, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the um, complaints the, that the religious right offers uh, every so often is uh, that, that a pastor's First Amendment rights are being compromised by the Johnson men. Well, that's just utter nonsense. A pastor can make any 
political endorsement he wants to make anytime he wants to make it. All he has to do is uh, renounce his, his tax exemption. Um, and he's, he's free to speak as much as he wants. And I think that most people would agree, I think most Americans would agree, that this trade-off, religious groups receiving tax-exempt status, which, by the way, is a form of public subsidy. Let's understand this. Tax exemption is not merely exemption from taxes. It means that other taxpayers have to make up the difference. Mm. Tax exemption is a form of public subsidy. And so that in exchange for that public subsidy, these tax, these religious organizations agree not to be overtly political. I think it's a pretty good deal. And for decades, most uh, religious leaders have understood it as a pretty good deal. Now, uh, in these uh, misguided efforts to repeal the Johnson Amendment, that that argument is is, uh, being lost. We've been speaking with Professor Randall Balmer of Dartmouth University. Um, Thank you so much for the time and all the information today. We, We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jonathan. Still to come, getting political. Should we look for spiritual and political guidance from our leaders of faith? Two reverends with very different backgrounds say resoundingly, yes. That's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Balmer explain the progression of the evangelical movement from social reformers to conservative crusaders, which begs the question, how politically influential should religious leaders be? And what does that look like now? In just a moment, we'll hear from two reverends who say their silence on climate change and racial justice would not just be a failure of spiritual leadership, but a denial of their humanity. Reverend Dr. Stephanie Rose Spaulding is Associate Professor and Director of Women's and Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. She's also a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Colorado Springs and founder of the Truth and Conciliation Commission. Welcome to you. Thank you. And Reverend Kyle Mayard Scop is the National Organizer and Spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Change. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Well, well, Dr. Spaulding, let's start with you. We are just a couple weeks out here, and, and I want to just get a sense of where your mind is at. You've been so out front on big topics of equity and, and racism, um, but I, I'm just thinking, where, where is your heart and your mind at as we get closer to this election right now? It is very much centered on hope and faith, and I continue to hope that people will move in a way that elevates justice, that elevates righteousness, that is willing to call their own practices into question so that even if it is not the perfect scenario in terms of representation at any level that we are voting for, but that we do the things that are best for larger society. So I'm really hoping and and working and operating in that hope. And I believe that it is going to happen. I believe that people um, have the courage to to do what they have not done before. Well, Reverend Scott, I want to go to you here. Um, a similar question to you. You've been so involved in climate change and speaking to folks across the country, engaging young voters. Um, can you give me a sense of where, where your mind and heart is also at right now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the question, and I, I loved your answer, Dr. Spaulding. Uh, y- your heart is is rooted in faith and hope. I, I think I would say something very similar. Uh, it's, it's no secret that the last uh, several years have been discouraging, to, to say the least, uh, to, to work in the space of climate education and advocacy. But where I get the most hope is from the on-the-ground experiences that I have all the time in the work that I get to do of 
educating and equipping and training up young leaders across the country who are leading on their Christian college campuses, leading in their congregations, leading among their friend groups, uh, and, and just the, the thousands of young Christians across the country that I have the privilege of engaging with, all of whom are rising up and demanding action on climate change as an expression of their Christian faith. We often say we're not doing this because we're Democrats or Republicans. We're not even doing this because we're environmentalists. We're doing this because we're Christians. And we believe that part of following Jesus in the 21st century is responding to a warming world. Uh, the, the, the best way that we know how to love God and to love our neighbor right now in a warming world is to do everything we can about climate change. And the, the movement that we're seeing among young people is incredible. So I am, I'm full of hope. I have no doubt that we are going to win on climate policy. The only question is how quickly can we do it? Well, Reverend Scop, I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about how you see this correlation between Christianity and climate change, because I think the, the most common narrative we hear is that evangelicals um, are, are either apathetic or perhaps even against the notion of climate change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There, there are a lot of historical and, and cultural reasons for the fact, and it is a fact, that white evangelicals in this country are the, the most suspicious of climate science and least receptive to proposed solutions. Like I said, there's lots of political and cultural and social reasons for that. There aren't a lot of theological or ethical or moral reasons for that. When you look at what scripture has to say, it becomes clear right in the very first chapter and then continuing all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation that God is for God's creation. God mm-hmm. loves the works of God's hands, takes delight in it, and calls us to take delight in it and to care for it as well. It's one of our first commands in Scripture is to serve and protect the world that God has made. And then when you look at all of the ways that climate change is pressing on people around the world, not just non-human creatures, not just ecosystems, but people who inhabit those ecosystems are being harmed by stronger storms, by longer, more intense droughts, by severe floods, and all kinds of other uh, weather and uh, uh, climate impacts. Uh, and, and when you look at Uh, the thrust of the gospel's moral arc, it's all centered in what Jesus said was the most important thing, which is loving God with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as if their present circumstances and future prospects were our own. And when when we take that seriously, it's impossible to look at something like climate change, which is degrading the good works of God's hands and harming our neighbors, actively harming them and, and preventing their ability to flourish and thrive. It's impossible for me then to imagine how our Christian faith can do anything but compel us forward to act on climate change as an act of love and devotion to God uh, for, for the, the good works of God's hands and out of love for our neighbor. Uh, who is being harmed by the impacts of climate change. So it is a, it is a deeply Christian issue. Uh, there's all kinds of scriptural, theological, ethical, and moral support for climate action from mm-hmm. Christians. You have to forgive me because I, in my Baptist tradition, want to scream, amen, yes, clap, <laughs> all, all the things. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> Well, Reverend Spalding, I mean, I, I, I can hear that this this is a topic that's very alive in you as well. And I know that the question of race right now is very alive in, in you as well. And I wonder how that also begins to enter the political sphere for you, where, again, we see that intersection of your faith, your theology, and kind of your public expression. Absolutely. And I just want to reiterate that from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation, that we are called to, yes, have dominion that has often been confused with domination. And that is not the instruction that God has given us according to our faith. So when we think about the the ways that all of these issues intersect, we are 
going to have in a very short time millions of climate refugees if we are not taking into consideration our actions right now and how we are stewarding on this planet. And that is not of God to not be concerned about how people are going to be displaced, how people are not going to be able to survive and thrive and their sustenance will not be maintained. And it's going to be a vast majority of people of color across the planet. Well, Dr. Spalding, and I want to get both of your views on this, but to start there, I mean, how should religious leaders engage in public discourse without getting political or should they get political? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't think that there's an aspect of life that we can not be involved in. The politics of our day are they they are what shape the the ways in which we are able to be community, the ways in which we are able to exist. Now, it is incumbent upon the decision making of every faith leader to decide if they are going to advocate for specific political issues or specific candidates and articulate to people if you know if they should vote for this, that, and a third. And that's a choice that everyone gets to make, but to not speak to what is harming, what is limiting, what is uh, displacing people in our communities, in our society, in our congregations, that is a failure of leadership. That is not leadership. So I don't think that we have the, the space to escape articulating and even even in the place of not saying anything, is actually taking a position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But do you, let's, I know you, you occupy a very interesting space here as a professor, also as at one point a political candidate, but also I want to speak to you right now as a reverend. Do you feel comfortable yeah. in that space, really instructing people how you feel they should vote? I do. I think of Joseph being second in command in Egypt. I think of Deborah being a judge. I think of David being king. I think of Daniel being an advisor. Uh, and and I walk in those traditions. What about you, um, Reverend Scott? How, how do you feel about the specifics of really speaking with people and, 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 and giving them advice on political decisions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think in this current moment, uh, there's been a, a conflation between the partisan and the political Uh, I certainly think religious leaders have a responsibility to speak into political issues because politics are how we as a society determine how power and resources will be distributed. Uh, It's how justice is executed. And scripture is clear that we are people who are uh, concerned with issues of justice, uh, that loving our neighbor moves beyond an interpersonal relationship and moves toward how the structures of society are organized such that our neighbors can flourish and thrive. So uh, we certainly have a responsibility to bring the teachings of scripture uh, and our theological traditions to bear to the important political issues of the day. I do not believe, however, that that means that religious leaders necessarily need to become partisan. Uh, I believe religious leaders can speak boldly, prophetically, and with truth as it relates to various political issues without becoming partisan. Hmm. Uh, Again, you know, we are such a polarized society that simply speaking biblical truth into a political issue like climate change is often seen as partisan, uh, but it need not be. And so I think all religious leaders... Um, have the authority and the responsibility to bring our biblically rooted uh, ethics and morals to bear in the political space for the sake of our neighbor's good uh, without necessarily becoming partisan. So uh, you will not be, let's say, endorsing candidates or something? No, and and we don't do that at Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. We simply share what we believe uh, Scripture has to say about our call to be caretakers of God's world and to to take bold action on climate change, to encourage our generation 
uh, to consider that when they make their choices, but to let them make the decision about what that choice will be. Yeah. Well, Dr. Spaulding, I'd love to continue this conversation with you here. I just, I know there's so many big questions here about American history and of church and state. And I just, uh, what else can can you add to that conversation, I guess? I, I actually love this conversation about the separation of church and state um, because so many people misunderstand what, understand what that means, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is definitely the legality of articulating that um, that certain institutions for their tax status must abide by a particular law. And that and that's wonderful. But the reality is to believe that anybody, any human being, and I think that human beings are worshiping beings and whether they are atheist or theist or, you know, diehard religious um, advocates, that everyone has a spiritual practice. It is what guides their moral compass. And that practice, the idea to think that that practice is going to be somehow extricated from them because they occupy a space, because they are um, elevated to a certain position is extremely problematic. That is to deny people their fullness of humanity. And so, yes, there are things that we must speak to because it impacts who we are. I am not just a faith leader. I am a black woman in a predominantly white um, Mm -hmm. denomination and living the histories of oppression in that space, in that um, embodied practice. And for me to be asked to, to separate out, to parse out all of who I am is actually to deny me my fullness of humanity. Reverend Scott, any any follow up to that? I, I wonder what you were thinking in that statement. Uh, I I thank uh, Dr. Spalding for sharing that. I th- I think it's beautifully put that um, to think that we can separate out uh, people's religious convictions from their full identities and, and, and uh, that we can somehow separate our civic participation from our religious commitments um, is, as Dr. Spaulding said, to kind of excise a, a necessary part of our humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the church and state question is so fraught. And I think Dr. Spaulding was right that it, it so often gets misinterpreted. Um, the separation of church and state is so that the state will not impose any sort of religious conviction on the populace, not so that citizens won't let their own religious convictions be brought to bear on how they participate in the public square for the sake of the common good. Reverend Scott, I, you know, one number that, that jumps out when we look at the last election was 81% of evangelicals voted for President Trump. Those numbers might be shifting a little bit, but um, I, I wonder what you're seeing as a young evangelical right now uh, out talking to people. Do you feel that that a lot of your, your cohort is still very aligned with the current administration? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's a number that haunts me, frankly. Um, and uh, two two important qualifications to that number is eighty one percent of evangelicals who voted voted for Donald Trump, and eighty one percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And we know that anywhere from one quarter to one third of evangelicals in the United States are actually people of color. Um, so eighty one percent of white evangelicals who voted voted for Donald Trump. That's still a massive number. Uh, and, and, you know, a few other numbers um, stick out to me and make me think that perhaps this is beginning to shift. Uh, one is that his his that number is slipping. His support among white evangelicals is beginning to slip, perhaps not at the same rate uh, as as other demographics, but it is slipping along with with many other demographics right now. Um, another number is 37 percent. And that is the the percentage of millennials and Generation Z who will be eligible to vote in 2020. 37% of the electorate will be millennial mm. or Generation Z, or at least uh, eligible electorate. Um, and we know that among millennials and Generation Z, issues like climate change, like the humane treatment of immigrants and refugees are, are really critically important issues. Um, and... You know, another number that turnout among uh, young voters, 18 to 29, jumped more than 70 percent 
between 2014 and 2018, those two midterm years. So it, it appears as though the millennial and Generation Z cohorts uh, are unusually motivated to have their voice heard at the ballot box, more so than, than other younger generations of voters who tend to turn out in smaller numbers. Um, and, and we'll have to see. I mean, I, I certainly am, am um, sensing a sense of urgency um, around many issues when it comes to this election, including climate change. Um, this really feels like the make or break election uh, for our ecological future. Um, and in, in many ways, it is. We, we have very little time to spare. Um, and so I do hope that uh, my generation turns out um, and my generation votes for a safe and stable climate. I want to change the subject here a little bit to to communication, and I find that both of you are 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 experts in this, obviously, and, and you work in a very interesting sphere. Um, Reverend Spaulding, to begin with you here, um, you live in a very white state, Colorado, uh, which is a very purple state, which is going to be another toss-up state, and you have been out front on, on certain social issues, and I, I wonder what you have learned and what you can teach us about how to communicate with those who are very different to us, that hold very different political opinions to us. How do you start to have those conversations? Because no matter what happens in a couple weeks on Election Day, a lot of people are going to be upset. They're going to be angry. They're not going to want to talk to each other. Where do you begin the conversation? I agree with you that November 3rd is actually just going to be the tip of the iceberg and things will grow extremely volatile after um, this election date. And so for me, as one who occupies, again, like this three-tier space of professor, pastor, and um, public servant, it is one where I I begin with empathy. Um, living in a predominantly white environment, working in predominantly white environments have taught me how to navigate um, seeing people and meeting people where they are without losing myself and um, my own humanity in the process. And so there it's a it's a delicate dance to recognize first and foremost that there is something something even with the most vile person that you know might rub you all the way to your core there is something that we have to acknowledge and celebrate in in the existence of another and that comes from my faith tradition right Often I am able to maneuver in political space in ways that others don't because I am so committed to my faith tradition and having to be held accountable to even seeing the God in those that I would call my enemy, right? Um, two Sundays ago, the biggest question that I consistently got was like, do I really not get the opportunity to cheer right now? Like legit questions, people wanting to see the demise of this individual because they had caught COVID after having spread, you know, such misinformation about this virus and disease and having to pastor in that place, in that moment, and to say, you no, you can't like that. You cannot pray for this person's death and still think that you are doing the work of God. Wow. Um, so leading with empathy um, in the harshest moments, right? And that is the most important time where our faith is called to the carpet. It's easy to align ourselves with people who think like us. It is in the work where Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek to love those that despitefully use you to do that in that moment. And that is what also opens up the opportunities for us to grow together. And it's not an easy, it's not easy work. I am not placating. I am not um, forgetting what I understand justice to be, but I also reconcile and recognize what God has called me to do, even in those moments. Reverend Scott, the same question to you. 
Yeah, um, I, I just want to thank Dr. Spaulding for that answer as well. Uh, beautifully put. And, and empathy and respect is the starting point for us at Young Evangelicals for Climate Action as well. Um, recognizing the the image of God, um, not only in the climate refugees on whose behalf we're advocating, but in that climate denying member of that church that we're speaking at, or you know, even in our extended family who might not understand why we do what we do. Um, and when we start with empathy and respect, it allows us to actually listen and not to simply listen with most of our mind thinking about the next talking point we're going to lob at them once their mouth stops moving, but to actually listen. And when we actually listen, we're able to identify values. For us, what we always come back to is a truism that... Um, Catherine Hayhoe, a good friend of ours, an evangelical Christian and climate scientist, um, talks about a lot, which is that everybody already has everything they need to care about climate change. Exactly who they are is who they need to be to care about climate change. They don't have to change anything about themselves uh, because we all want clean air and clean water and a safe future for ourselves and for our kids and grandkids. Um, everyone already has what they need, but it's our values that are driving our, our engagement on this issue. So if we can actually listen with empathy and respect, people are going to communicate to us the values that drive their public action. And then the work is connecting climate change and climate action to those values. Uh, whether it's uh, a passion for unborn life among many white evangelicals, whether it is a deep rootedness in scripture and the teachings of scripture, we can un identify those values and then communicate to them in a way that affirms those values and say, look, these values are good. Um, and here's how they connect to climate action. And here's how taking action on climate change connects you more deeply to the people in your community that you love. And here's how acting on climate change advances those values that you already hold most dear. Well, Reverend Dr. Stephanie Rose Spaulding, thank you so much for the time this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for this matchup. I am so grateful to be in the presence of Reverend um, Kyle Merritt Scott as well. Likewise, Dr. Spaulding. And Reverend Kyle Scott, thank you again for your time as well. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you enjoyed this episode and our programming, please consider becoming a part of the KCRW family. We realize 2020 has been a tough year for many of you, but if you're able and you're looking for a direct action to help your community, this is it. Please go to kcrw.com give or call 1-800-600-KCRW. Be like Sam Sparks of Los Angeles, Mandy McDowell of Aliso Viejo, Susan Leichter of Studio City, Todd McIntyre of Pasadena, David Reese of Los Angeles, Sophia Warren of Laguna Woods, Anna Jasper of Palm Springs, Amy Reichert of Phoenix, Arizona, and Evan Tiffany from Burnaby, Canada. Thanks to all of you. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.